Uh, hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. Uh, I'm Matt Risby. Hello. And joining me as always is Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? Yeah, doing very well. I uh, am currently dreading the end of Mad Men, which will air in a couple of hours at the time of recording. Yes, and that will lead us on to next week's episode where we will discuss uh, the end of Mad Men. Um, between this point and that point, I need to watch all of Mad Men Season 7 because I have not watched it yet. So I'm kind of very kind of much looking forward to revisiting those characters, but not looking forward to saying goodbye. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays, because did you watch, I'm assuming that means you haven't watched any of last year's episodes. Mm. I watched it up to the end of the first half with uh, okay. uh, the the musical number. Right, because I was thinking if you hadn't watched any of last year's, it might be interesting just to see how all 14 play in a row instead of seven divided up by a whole year and then another seven because I kind of feel like the reaction from people to these last run has been a little bit muted compared to last year's Mm -hmm. and part of me just kind of thinks that that's because people are treating it the same way they treated the ending of Breaking Bad and they're not really the same sort of shows it's not like they're going to end with a massive shootout well we don't know yet (laughs) yeah just going to end with Don Draper just going crazy with Uzis through SC, SCDP. Mm. But, um, yeah, I, I think it would be interesting to see how that works for you if you do what, even just watching those seven in a concerted go instead of week to week where you're kind of thinking, oh, God, this is the, the last of it. <laughs> There's going to be no more Mad Men soon. Mm, yeah, yeah, real shame. Great show. Uh, but like I say, we'll talk about that uh, in depth uh, next week. Um, Can is happening. Um and uh, as kind of you'd expect, we're giving you the ultimate insight into the Cannes Film Festival by not being there. Um, but uh, quite a lot's happening. Um, the McConaughey film is uh, the, the film that's being booed already, the Gus Van Sant one, um, which is nice to see. They've kind of set, set their stall out early. Um, sounds terrible. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like the idea, which is that Matthew McConaughey plays a guy who is an American who's suicidal and goes to this uh, Sea of Trees place in Japan, which is essentially where people go to commit suicide and it and befriends a uh, Japanese man but played by uh, Ken Watanabe in a bit of typecasting, mm-hmm. um, who I believe is also there to kill himself and they kind of strike up a friendship. And I kind of get the feeling that might work if it was Gus Van Sant in his death trilogy kind of mode. But I think it might be more in his kind of kind of studio-friendly, boring mode, based on the reviews I've read. Yeah, yeah. Um, but because it's been booed at Cannes, I now automatically hate it. So <laughs> uh, you know, the mind, our mind's been made up for us um, by uh, the, all the, the kind of knee-jerk reactions. Um, Woody Allen's been um, back again. I think it's his 50th film, uh, which is quite the milestone. Not many people reach that. No, he's uh, he's still cranking them out. I think he, he has said in the past he wants to try and equal what Bergman managed, which I think is something like 60. Right, well. Something like that. Or, although I think Bergman, a lot of those were like TV films because he pretty much quit cinemas after um, Fanny and Alexander. Uh, mm. But yeah, his new one 
sounds more interesting from what people have said it can than uh, it did when the trailer debuted, where it just looked like another one of his kind of older man falls in love with younger woman kind of stories. Uh, now it sounds like it's just kind of a warmed over crime and misdemeanors, and I like crimes and misdemeanors, so even a, a warmed up version sounds like it could be uh, interesting. Mm. And not, and he's kind of been given uh, interviews, obviously for for kind of uh, the new film, and he's kind of talked about uh, in obviously echoing Bergman talking about the making TV movies. He's talked about the deal he's had with Amazon Prime, um, which in which he revealed that he's kind of shitting himself, and he thinks it was a huge mistake. It's difficult to tell when you read Woody Allen interviews or kind of sound bites, whether it's kind of loaded with the usual kind of self-deprecating kind of anxiety or whether it's genuine anxiety and he kind of does think he's made a mistake. Because he did also reveal in that that he doesn't own a computer and he doesn't know what streaming is. Yeah, I think there's probably a certain degree of uh, truth to it because I think people have said that, you know, that the main attraction of people going into television or filmmakers going into television is that you are given a lot more freedom uh, certainly under current models where people basically say you know the episodes can be as long as you want because it's on streaming we don't have to do adverts and you can do pretty much what you like and we won't interfere interfere but that's basically what Woody Allen's entire career has been (laughs) he's always had that freedom but now instead of being told okay you know you kind of wrap it up in a hundred minutes now they've said okay you have to tell whatever it is like five hours of story but each story has to be self-contained which i think is something he's probably not that used to uh, mm. i kind of wonder if since he's been hanging out with louis ck a little bit maybe if he just followed the louis model and did whatever he wants if every half hour made it just a series of short films he'd probably be uh, a little better off but i think yeah yeah it'll be interesting to see if he actually goes through with it mm. and it's like off the back of that um, I don't know if these are new announcements or what, but it's certainly the first I'd heard of it. But like Jim Jarmusch and uh, Terry Gilliam, they've both got deals with Amazon to do stuff. And like, what are we living through here? We've kind of talked at length about how kind of post-Sopranos, it's the uh, the golden age of television and we're kind of so lucky because it just keeps going and going and going. And, you know, we're, we're never really kind of, uh, we'll kind of support for choice really of, of, of high quality TV shows and not just US drama. It's all around the world. But, this is kind of unprecedented, is the way this is happening. Yeah, it also calls to mind an article I read last year. I can't remember who wrote it, but it was basically an article saying about how the mid-level indie has died and it kind of cited a bunch of people who used to make films all the time in the 80s and 90s for sort of $20, 30000000 million and they would kind of play in art houses and just kind of gradually earn their money back. And the examples they gave were people like Jim Jarmusch, who still does make films, but not that frequently. David Lynch, who hasn't made a film since 2006. Uh, John Waters, who hasn't made a film also since 2006, I don't think. Um, mm. And saying that essentially that for, for people like them, uh, the the kind of the hustle that's required now to try and assemble enough cash to make the sort of films they used to make is perhaps a bit too much. But John Waters has essentially said the same. He's like, if, if unless someone's going to comes in with a checkbook and say here's 40 million dollars do what you like he's not gonna you know scrape the money together or make a film for like 10 grand in his back garden or something uh and i think that streaming services like that seem to be stepping in because there's a certain degree of cachet to say we've got the new woody allen tv series or you know in the case of uh, david lynch and uh, twin peaks which he is now returned to 
mm-hmm. you can really see there they're kind of going you know if we can say that we've brought Twin Peaks back and that we have all the uh, footage that David Lynch has shot for you know the better part of a decade that's a that's quite a big coup mm. yeah yeah um what else has been happening in the news this week uh marvel have been kind of uh in the headlines again yeah they announced or, or it, the rumors came out that they were looking to uh recruit uh ava duvernay the director of selma to direct one of their forthcoming films which uh has created a very mixed response online primarily because you know on the one hand you have people who are like well, I'd rather she was making like her sort of films rather than entering the Marvel machine, which I can understand because certainly post uh, Edgar Wright and Ant Man, there's a sense that maybe people who have a fairly strong vision are not going to fit in the model that Marvel have assembled for themselves. But also, uh, on the other hand, the fact that she's being courted for Captain Marvel or Black Panther, and so they seem to be going, oh, we need a woman or a black person to direct these films about a woman and a black guy uh, as mm-hmm. if they're kind of just kind of it's either tokenism or just pigeonholing her in a way that uh seems kind of offensive yeah it's it's one of those things that you like um as soon as i heard it i was just like well, that's pretty kind of like bold as as terms of choices go and then when you read what she's being put forward for you're like that's just like the opposite of what i thought it was that's the kind of the most uh, narrow-minded kind of view as if she's going to like be able to tap into something for that audience like Selma was kind of a film not just for everyone which is fucking absurd um, but then also watching Selma you don't think God, I really wish this person would make a uh, uh, a superhero film what it kind of reminded me of to go back to Mad Men there was a, uh, a scene in the kind of the most some of the more recent episodes where I won't go into spoilers but a character is presented with a job opportunity at a place they don't want to go. And Mm. the person who presents it to them just basically says, you know, go there and work there for like five years or three or three years. And then you can go somewhere else and you'll have, you know, the buzz from that and you'll be able to ask for more money and you'll have, uh, you know, the prestige of it all there. And you kind of wonder if that's the same metric by which you have to judge being offered working at Marvel, it may not be the most uh, creatively stimulating work and it may be actually quite confining, but if you can work on a film of that scale, maybe it offers more opportunities. Mm. Or also kind of makes a rod for your own back, mm. yeah. which is another possibility. Especially if the film that comes out is maybe not as successful as all the others because you're working with a more obscure character. Mm. And then, you know, you get the blame. And I think it's been demonstrated before that uh, in Hollywood that, you know, male directors tend to get a lot of chances to fail and they keep getting more work. But there's fewer opportunities for women. And if uh, a female director directs a film that flops, uh, it tends not, they tend not to get as many offers after that. Mm. But, you know, using that statement as a jumping off point um it's been a great week for elizabeth banks and pitch perfect 2 a film we're both hugely looking forward to i've not seen it yet i'm seeing it on friday um but uh it's notably directed by elizabeth banks whose previous effort was that bit in movie 43 which you don't want to talk about with the fucking cat 
Um, but uh, it's been a huge hit. Um, got some decent critical notices and kind of puts Elizabeth Banks in, uh, regrettably, not very kind of, uh, uh, kind of well, not, not great company in the sense that there's not really anyone around her that is also doing that. What I'm trying to say is there's not really women in Hollywood in that position. No, who directs a film that opens to $70 million, uh, which is specifically a film starring and about women. Mm. And who also, uh, well, she executive produced the first one. Um, she's kind of uh, shaping up for the uh, the kind of mogul uh, role for this. Um, and she seems, in the interview she's given, the press she's given, obviously the film is very much about kind of empowerment and all, etc., etc. Um, but that's very much how the uh, the press for it is focused on, on kind of how she's, uh, kind of really, taking it and run with it. Yeah, and and I think that's that's great. I haven't seen the film either, but I'm really looking forward to uh, checking it out. But you do kind of hope that it will be, you know, it, it will then lead to more opportunities further down the road. But I think the sexism in Hollywood is so endemic that it it will just be treated as a one-off as are all the instances where films about and by women are treated as one-offs even though there's a whole string of them yeah yeah absolutely i think um we're kind of moving to a a position where we can't escape doing an episode on uh kind of sexism in hollywood we touched on it with the susan sarandon artist profile we did um but kind of it's not seems to be a day go by without uh, a men's rights activist doing yeah. something or kind of there being an awful kind of feminism debate which just kind of seems to have suddenly been transported back to 1965 I don't really get it um, so yeah I think we'll probably have to do an adri- uh, uh, a podcast so everyone knows what to think about these issues yeah I think we really need to we two men really need to lead the way yeah us two white privileged males need to man- <laughs> no, explain what's going on so if you want to listen up ladies then by all means um, that does actually we... that does actually remind me on on Twitter today someone I follow was saying because there's been a as you say there's been a men's right activist thing about uh, about Mad Max and saying mm. that because it's a film that's uh, it, it's got a man's name in the title but it really stars Charlize Theron she's the main character and you know the cast the main cast is primarily women uh, and that's that's all great but that's angered men's right activists who haven't seen the film and who don't really seem to understand what the earlier Mad Max films were about. Um, mm-hmm. Because they say, oh, she's barking Mad Max, Max around and no one does that, which is actually what happens in all of the films. <laughs> in mm-hmm. all of the films, Max gets captured or he gets beaten and he gets uh, bossed around by people. But uh, someone on Twitter was saying that, you know, I've just heard that there's this, this uh, these complaints, and then they said, uh, you know, I, I dig that the... That the cast is mainly women. That the fits a film mainly driven by women, uh, and then it said a man said that. And I was like, Ugh, I really admire your sentiment, but I really wish you hadn't said that. <laughs> like you were just kind of saying this. This point of view is only validated because a man says it. Mm. You know, it just kind of is one of those things where you think uh, there's like ninety percent of what you're saying is fine, <laughs> but that ten percent is just what kind of ruins it. Yeah, they had to ruin it right at the end. Um, but yeah, uh, if those of you who don't know what a man, men's rights activist is, it's just a prick, basically a whining man, baby. Um, yep. and it should be avoided at all costs. Yeah. They are awful. Every single mm-hmm. one of them. Um, 
Moving on from whining man babies, um, what are we talking about this week and why? This week we're talking about uh, nostalgia to tie in again to Mad Max, and but also kind of touching upon um, a lot of films that are currently out now and that have been coming out in, in recent years that are either uh, directly based on old properties or uh, kind of harken back to old styles of filmmaking, uh, but also because nostalgia is kind of the little hamster in the wheel that powers all discussion on the internet, it seems. Mm. It's very intoxicating uh, uh, nostalgia, and it's, it kind of um, can affect people in, in in a way like no other. Like it's it has the ability to kind of uh, capture uh, people who remember its imagination, and also kind of intrigue people who, who kind of perhaps don't understand what it is. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to see how filmmakers and studios tap into that because you know we've talked about star wars a bunch in the past but you know the the trailers for uh the force awakens really are about tapping into a certain idea of what star wars is maybe not specific characters but certainly just kind of a general feeling that people had when they first watched star wars a sense of adventure and of a big wide galaxy that's out there to explore and you can kind of really see that from those trailers but you also see in uh in Mad Max Fury Road, which uh, is great, <laughs> is a really, really fun and uh, fascinating action movie. The, the That film is kind of a film designed to both play into and subvert people's nostalgia for the early films, because the trailers have these kind of signifiers that remind you of the older films. The, the kind of setting of the Citadel is sort of similar to Barter Town from Beyond Thunderdome, the main villain in Morton Joe is similar to um, Lord Humongous from the second one, uh, but when you actually watch it, and and also you know a big appeal of it, and I think what got has got a lot of people excited is it's got lots of practical effects, which obviously harkens back to an older style of action filmmaking. But when you watch mm-hmm. the film, uh, it's shot in a, th- a thoroughly modern way. Uh, you know, it's there's lots of cuts, there's lots of different. Uh, frame rates used it's it's shot in a way that makes you think this is definitely a film that has been made by someone who's been paying attention to trends in action and uh, uh, and they are playing against it but also kind of use utilizing the things that about modern action that they actually like mm, mm, absolutely and coming from a director who's kind of 70 odd years old who hasn't made a film for a while that's uh quite something isn't it yeah, and certainly hasn't made a live-action film in a while. His last live-action film was Babe, Pig in the City, which came out in 1998. Mm, yeah, a peculiar career, uh, Mr Miller. Um, and yeah, uh, one uh, that kind of can't be ignored now. And kind of, a lot of people are saying, a lot of the kind of reviews are uh, leaning on the fact that they're saying this is a, all kind of modern Hollywood uh action films need to take note of, of Fury Road and, and kind of learn a little something, which is interesting because obviously there is uh, a kind of current feel of like people saying, let's move away from CGI and get back to practical effects, but I'm never quite sure how um, I'm kind of listening to that in an echo chamber of people who grew up with those kind of things like myself. And I don't really know how much the kids of today care about that. Yeah, I think that uh, it'll be interesting to see how Fury Road does in the weeks ahead because when I went to see it last last night, the uh, the audience was mainly kind of people in their, their 30s and 40s who obviously knew the earlier films, but there were a few, and, you know, it's R-rated, so obviously you're not going to get super young kids there, but 
the response to the practical effects was very much kind of a sense of being wowed by them. And I think that it'll be interesting to see if that wow factor kind of uh, is passed on to the younger generation who look at it and think, you know, it's, it is, there is something genuinely amazing in seeing people uh, do absolutely insane shit (laughs) that could get them killed. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? That like, in the olden days, we were wowed by a special effect, so we didn't understand how it was done. And now, you know, you're wowed by something that's real, that's there. Um, it just seems like a really curious thing that now the reality is the special effect. Yeah, I think that's also kind of the reason why people really went crazy for the two Raid films, um, mm. where essentially what you're you're seeing is people doing incredibly well choreographed stunts and someone just kind of letting them play out in the camera as much as they can just because again it's there is no sense of my god how how did they do that it's just a case of wow i can't believe they did that mm, mm. um i really do hope that it kind of uh does spark a return of the, the kind of live action so there's one thing that's really kind of hacked me off though you see kind of digital doubles in things and you know if you're going to go so far as to have a digital double then why not just have digital everything you know yeah, I think the the, uh, the physicality and the visceralness of of Fury Road is really is really impressive and impactful, and and hopefully that's what people you know take away from it. In addition to the fact that it's got a really good story and it's just got a wonderfully minimalist, uh, high octane octane thrill ride. Mm, yeah, I suppose if you're going to entice people with uh, nostalgia, you need to deliver once they get their uh, bums in the seats, I guess. Yeah, I think that that's also something that's interesting in terms of a forthcoming film, which I saw the trailer for right before Mad Max, which is the uh, sequel slash reboot to National Lampoon's Vacation, where Mm. the entire kind of premise is that uh, the character of Rusty, this time played by Ed Helms, is nostalgic for the vacation he went on when he was a kid, and he decides he's going to take his family out there, and there is... One very good joke in the trailer uh, where he's talking about this to his kids and then his eldest son just says, I've never even heard of the original Vacation and Ed Helm says, not a lot of people have, but I feel like this one will stand on its own, which is kind of a clever little meta joke in the 21 Jump Street vein, uh, Mm. which I kind of appreciated because, uh, I don't know, for some reason I'm always quite uh, appreciative of kind of brazen uh, admit, uh, admissions of creative bankruptcy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, it's interesting about that because, like, like you say, it, it's playing on nostalgia, especially with the the kind of European Vacation uh, reboot. Um, that now people who kind of were into that and were of uh, like kind of teenage or early twenties when that came out will now be kind of. 40 and 50 but well is that the kind of film they'll be wanting their kids to see or like tell them oh i remember those great vacation movies they were fantastic or is it just a way to perhaps get a film out there without having to uh do too much work plus you've already got you know 10 percent of your audience built in yeah i do i get the feeling it is kind of strange with stuff where it is r-rated because you kind of feel like that it immediately places the appeal of it outside of the key demographic for most studios because mm. obviously they want the young kids and you know kid uh, parents may take their young kids with them to go and watch an r-rated film i know that 
uh, my dad would used to sneak me into stuff that I was much too young to feel as a kid and over here because it's kind of an elective system and you can take a 10 year old into an R-rated film if you think they can handle it um, mm. you, you know that's that's perfectly fine and some studio, some cinemas will waive R ratings if they feel that a film is kind of worthwhile for people to go and see but you know, I think most parents probably wouldn't want to go to take their kids to a fairly raunchy uh, R-rated comedy uh, mm. unless they've you know not been able to get a babysitter and they just want to get out of the house. So yeah. Yeah, I think it is. It does enter this kind of weird grey area of stuff like that. Whereas stuff like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you can kind of see the appeal to that because you're still making a film for kids. But then the uh, parents would be like, "Oh, I remember that. Yeah, let's let's go and watch it. It'll be a fun thing to do together." And then no one's happy mm. <laughs> because there is because you have to watch the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles remake. Yeah, I think a good example of um, what I was saying about um, making something that's nostalgic but having it built in for an audience who are ready for it, something like The Expendables, mm. where you've got a bunch of action stars who are all quite old, but the audience that enjoyed the films of those people, uh, when they're in their pomp, you know, are going to be older as well. It's a film aimed for the audience that is kind of nicely in step with the the cast and the thing. I'm not really kind of beating up the expendables here. It's kind of fairly horrible. Um, but that's a film exclusively aimed at, at you know, people who were old enough to remember uh, Rambo and, and Commando and, and Predator and things like that. Yeah, and you also wonder, you know, what was what math went into the uh, construction of that? You know, did they just look at everyone, all the various stars, audiences and thought, okay, if these kind of all these Venn diagrams overlap it will guarantee us like a hundred million dollars. Mm. Uh, and then if we add in a few slightly younger stars to, to kind of beef it up, then we'll get people, the odd person who didn't, you know, watch Rambo uh, endlessly repeated on telly. Yeah. Um, we kind of say nostalgia is a way of, uh, you know, building in a pre-built, pre-sold properties are always, you know, what Hollywoods are about. They want, you know, they'll always go with a, something that's from a book because there's already an audience there. They'll, you know, anything that's adapted that's got any kind of like uh, familiarity with it that's from the beginning of time, from the beginning of Hollywood. That is 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 kind of what they have done, and you understand that. Obviously, we've kind of got, take it to a ridiculous degree these days. With, you know, we've seen kind of two hundred billion dollar movies based on the, a board game Battleship, um, which is. Uh, about as tenuous as you could possibly get. So in terms of marketing and actually kind of turning a profit and getting people in through the door, nostalgia is actually very effective. And we've got the big film uh, this summer, we've got Jurassic World coming out, um, which from all intents and purposes looks like the exact same, same film as Jurassic Park. But you're going to be having, like you say, with... Um, uh, the R-rated movies, the opposite. We are going to definitely have adults who saw it for the first time when they were kind of 15. Um, there'll be parents now and they'll be taking their kids to see it because they'll want them to feel exactly as they did when they saw Jurassic Park for the first time. Yeah, and that's obviously kind of a key part of the early marketings to it. Like the, the first trailer, they had the slightly slowed down uh minor key version of the theme tune of the of the the theme from Jurassic Park where mm-hmm. the the whole point of including that there is obviously this is the bit of music everyone remembers from it but we're kind of putting a slight spin on it to make it sound 
kind of wistful and sad, which again I think is kind of one of the things that kind of pokes you really with the, the nostalgia factor of it all. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's it's kind of going to work I think for Jurassic Park because um, that's a family film mm-hmm. and like it has this it's kind of tap into a certain type of uh, feel of a, a you know, type of film that was made a while ago. Another example of that is something like Super 8, yeah. uh, which made a very deliberate attempt to, you know, uh, feel like those Amblin films from the 70s and 80s. Yeah, and also, I think to an extent, uh, Godzilla from last year kind of played into that idea because obviously there you have a one of the most recognisable names in all of cinema because even if people have never seen a Godzilla film they know who Godzilla is it's like a very iconic character but that film did to an extent try to uh, evoke the the sense of awe of a lot of um, Spielberg's big action movies mm. um do you think that um nostalgia is ultimately kind of only useful up to a point because you've got to have something new to offer. Otherwise, it's just going to be a kind of shallow exercise. Yeah, I think that uh, from a marketing perspective, it's kind of found money because if you can tap into nostalgia and play it in a way that appeals to the uh, appeals to the target audience and essentially just kind of pandering to them, then mm. that's probably going to be enough for you to get a really big opening weekend and then you know kind of make your money away that's certainly the case with i think remakes of horror films really play on that because what you essentially do is you just present something that's based on a pre-existing property you know maybe with an iconic villain and then you make it cheaply and then release it and you think that on the one at the very least you know maybe kids who grew up kind of furtively watching it on tv will think oh you know i want to watch a new version but uh, there's also you also end up problems where you know maybe people make this this stuff and then the fans react very angrily to it. Uh, there's currently a uh, controversy brewing. Uh, maybe controversy is not it is too strong a word, but there's certainly a backlash against the live action version of Gem and the Holograms, the adaptation of the kind of cult uh, '80s animated series, because mm. I think a lot of the people who really liked that show and really would be the only people who would want to see a feature film version because again that that is pretty obscure I would say I mean I know that it's on various I think it's on Netflix but I don't feel like that's one that's had a huge resurgence in popularity um, but a lot of the fans look at it and said that there's just a load of stuff that's completely wrong and like in terms of the kind of casting choices changing people's races and things like that it just looks kind of bad and uh that has turned off pretty much the only people who would be interested in seeing it and mm. so that's kind of the point at which uh you know nostalgia is kind of element that people can harness and use it to create a great amount of money but if they don't do it right uh, it can just completely backfire on them mm. um you kind of alluded to it at the top of the show um with david lynch now returning to twin peaks uh the kind of reboot in terms of nostalgia, nostalgia is kind of u- is being used and being kind of called upon uh, when we talk about the Twin Peaks uh, TV resurgence reboot, whatever you want to call it. 
Um, and nostalgia is kind of clouding people's judgment, I feel, because uh, I think a lot of people are forgetting um, that the last time uh, people clamoured for, for Twin Peaks to return, and it did, it was the second season of Twin Peaks. Yeah, it's definitely uh, something of a problem because on the one hand, even though the second season of Twin Peaks is a lot worse than the first one, there's still some amazing moments in it and I think that there's enough genius in it to make you think this will be, this this new version you know, could still be interesting with the key players in, in place. And mm. also in terms of nostalgia, I think nostalgia was a huge part of of getting the the series made because it's obviously a a huge name and a show that's cult has grown much more and you can see that in the the, the success of the um, gold DVD box set from several years ago which was kind of a hot ticket item that revived a lot of interest in the show and its success on Netflix and various streaming services but I think nostalgia is the thing that allowed David Lynch to get a lot more money to make the show he wanted mm. because he said he wasn't going to do it and that Showtime weren't offering him, you know, what he felt he needed to make the show as good as possible. And then, you know, fans and cast members and everyone reacted very, very badly to that. And because of that, I think he was given slightly stronger negotiating tactics. So I think that's a good, another example of someone uh, harnessing it. But what I find interesting about it is, you know, just trying to think what a new version of Twin Peaks would look like because... Mm. David Lynch has grown a lot as an artist in the last 25 years. His style has evolved and changed in that time. And also, uh, television has changed a lot in that time. And the whole thing with Twin Peaks, when it started, was it was very a kind of very knowing, semi-parody of late-night soap operas that were on at the time. And it kind of used that style to make its own kind of goofy, melodramatic bones, but also, you know, to kind of Trojan horse in some of David Lynch's most wonderfully weird and menacing imagery. Uh, and so I kind of wonder if people will react badly if the show looks like a prestige drama, which would be kind of the obvious model for them to kind of use as a basis for, for really kind of pushing the envelope the third time round. Mm, that's the nostalgia trap, isn't it? Mm. You, you bring people in with, um, you know, something they find uh, familiar and reassuring and it kind of makes them feel a certain way and remember how they were at a certain point in their life. And then when what you give them that's new doesn't make them feel that again, um, then, you know, you're kind of onto a loser there. Yeah, it's the, it's the trap you also get into when bands reunite because, you know, most recently Blur, who are a band to be obviously, you know, huge in the 90s and I think a lot of people have very specific feelings about the music they were making then. Uh, mm -hmm. made them feel and they came back to Glastonbury and did a great hit set which was like a huge kind of big moment for people who grew up loving their music uh, they came back with an album that sounds exactly like the sort of music you would expect them to be making now which is like Damon Albums uh, uh, world music -y sort of stuff and Graham Cox and kind of noodling on a guitar and uh, it's a really interesting and fun album but for anyone who wants Blur to make a blur album in inverted commas like they used to make. We just listen to that and think, what the hell happened to them? And it's like, yeah, they grew up and they changed as artists. <laughs> and that's just what happens if they were just trying to make another song too. It'd be deeply sad and depressing. Mm. Where's the line then between nostalgia and fan service? Uh, that is a very good question. Uh, I think it's 
lies ultimately in what the artist chooses to do. I think if they choose to kind of be more true to themselves than to maybe what the audience wants, obviously they have to meet the audience halfway in that saying, admitting what I created means a great deal to you and you have partial ownership of this because it went out into the world and it kind of entered your heart or whatever. But at the same point, you have to then just say, but I am the person who created this and I ultimately am responsible for that. And I think to an extent, that's probably the key tension behind the the Star Wars prequels because Mm. they're essentially what you have is someone who made this thing that means an awful lot to a huge number of people. Uh, They came back and they made the film they want to do and everyone hated it. Again, that film is terrible and all three of those films are not very good, but Mm. essentially a large part of the backlash to the Star Wars prequels was that people who grew up with the original films watched these new digital versions that conformed more to the sort of stories that George Lucas wanted to make, i.e. terrible ones. Um, and then that, you know, negatively impacted how people saw them. Mm. A lot of the kind of said we said earlier we'd do a we'd do a something on uh, kind of misogyny and sexism, kind of the current thing that's happening now with men's rights activists and, and one of the threads I've seen uh in their kind of like cuntish bleating uh <laughs> is um is basically saying, you know, we're not against um, you know, kind of women being given kind of greater precedence, but we don't want our stories kind of ruined or uh, subverted in any way just for kind of like equality's sake. And you saw that with something like when in the comics that, I mean, I'm not really a big comics guy, but um, they've uh, done a new Thor line, haven't they? Where Thor is, is a lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, Thor, not a real person, completely made up. Uh, so I don't really see what there is to get upset about there. Um, but it just shows how people are so touchy uh, about things that mean something to them from their past. Yeah, because I think for a lot of people, the idea of you going back and remaking something that they loved is some way cheapens the, the memories that they have because you're essentially acknowledging that the thing that you loved is just a product that someone made to make money and now someone else is going to use that to make more money, uh, which I think is the great kind of... Uh, truth of a lot of mainstream cinema that no one really wants to acknowledge Mm. which is that there is a lot of great art that gets made to make money but there's also a lot of shit and sometimes when you're very young you can't really tell the difference (laughs) and so maybe you imbue imbue a lot of worth into something that maybe didn't deserve it Uh, and then when someone comes and remakes it you feel like they're cheapening something that was already kind of tawdry Mm. yeah you don't want to ruin my memories of like that Ewok movie that I saw on my eighth birthday. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, speaking of world, speaking of which, what kind of makes you nostalgic? Um, what makes you kind of what transports you back to a kind of a more simpler, innocent time? Uh, I think I, I I kind of feel like anything that's kind of a story of kind of great adventure that's sort of not terribly violent because like Star Wars was my favorite film growing up so anything that kind of has that uh just kind of very broad accessible adventure thing you know kind of very lush strings on the soundtrack mostly practical practical effects uh hand drawn animation is a big part because obviously as a kid 
I'm sure this is true for a lot of people. I watched a lot of Disney films. So anytime mm. I see something that has hand-drawn animation, uh, that kind of you know takes me back to being a kid uh, quite uh, poignantly. Mm. I've, I feel like um, films where, and it's going to kind of echo the Super 8 sentiment, where the adults aren't really involved. Right, sure. Um, you know, watch the Goonies a lot as a kid, and there's an example of a film that, um, when you revisit it as an adult, um, the only thing there is nostalgia. Sure. Uh, the film, the film is okay, but I feel much, you know, very fond of it uh, in terms of nostalgia. But I, I kind of appreciate the film; isn't particularly great. There's a lot to enjoy in it, but you know, I wouldn't say it's anywhere near, anywhere near my favourite films at all. But this, the feel of nostalgia and feel of watching it at the age that the kids are in the film and that maybe I could go on an adventure and find some uh, some, find some kind of treasure um, and uh, yeah do kind of cool stuff like that even that's, though it's really, it's really dark that film yeah, there's that, a dude's been shot in the forehead <laughs> that's uh, that kind of remind me again of, of a similar film it's you know something like Stand By Me just because of the way again that you know there's a dead body and that is quite dark and mm. goes into some really bleak places but uh, films that kind of try and recreate the sense of you know being a kid and summer seeming like it was going to last forever mm. because you know you you finish school and then you've got like two to three months of not having to go there and you can just go and play with friends and yeah. uh, whether that's you know going and playing football in the park or going following uh, a train tracks to find a dead body you know something that films that kind of recreate that sense uh mm. you know that's that's kind of a strong signifier of nostalgia for me mm. i did both of those things played football around the park and did find a dead body it's uh the perils of growing up in east anglia i guess <laughs> so um i also find um anything kind of like when i was actually starting to get into films very nostalgic which is anything kind of in the early to mid 90s so mm. if i ever if i i mean i've not seen the film uh, lay on in uh, ages, uh, but when I do either hear the Bjork song from that, or I kind of see Gary Oldman in character, I kind of instantly have a pang of like, oh, I was discovering kind of films that weren't just the films I watched as a kid, which sure. is kind of very strange. Um, and if any, like, I think music has the power to be nostalgic more than film, which is perhaps something you could argue against if you feel that way, but. Um, because you hear music a bit more passively, it can be on in the background, and you can, you know, you can have a shit summer job one year, which you know I did when the radio was on and playing the same song over again. So when you hear that song, you're instantly transported back. You know, songs are kind of three minutes; they're kind of in and out of your head before you know it. So I feel like they kind of trigger memories uh, more than anything. But if I think about a, a film, a song that has the uh, the emotive qualities um, and the kind of uh, the ability to jog. Uh, my memory to any one place weirdly it's that Bjork song it's Venus is a boy from uh, from Leon and um, I never owned a Bjork record in my life <laughs> but still that song triggers that response in in a ridiculous way yeah the music definitely I think you're right has a, a greater hold on that case which is why you know every film about the 60s opens with turn 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 it seems you know it's just mm. kind of a, it's a very easy way of saying this is happening at a very very specific time uh, in history, uh, I watched the film Beyond the Lights today, which I'd recommend to anyone. That's great, wonderful romance set in the world of kind of pop and R and B. Uh, it's really good, but it starts with a uh, flashback to the main character's youth growing up in Brixton, 
and uh, it starts in 1998, and the way they signal that is having a uh, part of a BBC radio broadcast talking about the landmine ban, which was put in place after Diana died, and then mm. the song Virtual Insanity by Jamiroquai, and as soon as that thing, as soon as that song stops up, I think, yeah, that's 1998 for you. <laughs> it really yeah. kind of takes you back instantly because of uh, how inescapable that song and video were. Yeah, yeah, and a huge argument between uh, like me and my friends when that video came on because they were just like, "Oh yeah, they went to a, a top secret military facility and they, they've got this 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 machine that moves the floor." And you're like, <laughs> "Dude, it's it's a room on wheels. Like, think think about it practically." And why would they? Why would a top secret military facility need a fucking floor moving machine? For Christ's sake! Oh Jesus! And how would Jamiroquai? You know, how would they get access to it? You know, if you had a, any kind of top secret military thing, you wouldn't let JK fanny around it with a couch, would you? Yeah, I think it's for training them for situations where they're fighting someone in a building that's slowly collapsing. Yeah, well, that's how uh, they trained for the fight in Inception. <laughs> Possibly. It is kind of virtually insane. Nostalgia, a very powerful, intoxicating thing, and really does kind of capture you and you, the kind of public's imagination, like. Uh, nothing else, and it's free as well, nostalgia, that's the thing, the work's already been done and the money's already been spent. Mm. But it can also, I think we, we've kind of talked about how, I think we've talked a bit more about how it's kind of a negative thing, because it does kind of, I think it drives a lot of the negative discussion online, because people will react very viscerally, viscerally to, uh, you know, remakes and stuff like that, but uh, I think there's something to be said for it as a kind of a creative, something that drives people people creatively, because certainly in kind of recent years you start to see a lot of filmmakers who grow, grew up watching stuff in the 80s and 90s making films that feel very modern but also are hearkening back to stuff they watched as a, when they were younger and they're trying to put their own spin on it which I think is why you get things like um, you know Your Next and uh, and The Guest from uh, Adam Wingard which kind of both harken back to horror films from the 80s and uh it follows, which you know is very heavily influenced by the work of John Carpenter, uh, mm. and, and it, it's interesting to see how some people can be, uh, I think, kind of confined by nostalgia. It can kind of harden them against new ideas, but some people can use it to say it's a kind of spark the creation of new and more interesting things. Mm. Here's here's a question then: mm-hmm. something like the film Drive. Right, uh, which uh, is uh, stylistically and thematically uh, owes a huge debt to uh, things like The Driver and Thief. Yep, um, kind of, but also features uh, kind of almost an eighties feel. The kind of a lot of kind of synth on the soundtrack and things. Is that nostalgia, or is that uh, homage? Uh, I would think I would say from a filmmaking point of view, it is uh, homage more than it is nostalgia because. It's not trying to recreate the period so much. It's just kind of creating a, a kind of a feel for it. Um, but from a kind of marketing standpoint, I think the the kind of a lot of the ads and the artwork for it is deliberately designed to kind of lure people in who watched those sort of films when they were younger, because that's obviously the only way to, way to kind of sell that film to a to a big audience. Because it's not really going to appeal to people who didn't watch those sort of films. Yeah, yeah. And no one's going to be like, hey son, 
I saw uh, The Driver and Thief when I was a lad. I'll take you to see it. <laughs> and the kid's like, I'm 10. Don't take me to see this. I don't want to see someone stomped to death in a lift. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're coming anyway, kid. Don't worry about it. Um, anything else to add about Nostalgia Red before we, uh, before we leave it in the past? Uh, I was just trying to think of like examples where it drives someone creatively and it, it kind of doesn't work. And the example for me would probably be uh, the Grindhouse experiment that uh, Quentin Tarantino and Robert oh, Rodriguez did. Fuck yes, that's that's a great example. Like that's, um, uh, I mean, I've I've kind of made my feelings known about Grindhouse in the past, but it's just peculiar as an experiment. We've said before that you know when Robert Rodriguez and and uh, Quentin Tarantino said they were going to do it, you would get really excited because these are guys who grew up on a diet of grindhouse and, and kind of flea pit cinema and kind of cheap films made for about 20 quid with shitty old cameras and shot in a day with with you know hardly any special effects and, and a, a cast of probable prostitutes um and then we thought well we'll get the same thing but then they went and spent a hundred million dollars on it and kind of missed the point um now the idea of kind of tapping into people's nostalgia is weird because they're trying, they're trying to sell that film on you know thinking of films from another time, most of the people who go and see that film probably only ever seen films in a, in a multiplex. The Grindhouse era was long dead before a lot of the audience that were born. Yeah, I think it's also interesting to kind of think about who was really pushing for that because based on kind of what's happened uh, since then, um, and also based on the films themselves, you kind of get the feeling that Maybe Rodriguez was the guy who was really pushing for that aesthetic because uh, Quentin Tarantino did that and then he came back with Inglorious Bastards, which is a film that, again, harkens back to spaghetti westerns and kind of World War II vehicles, but it definitely feels like a film that he's making because he liked those things but he wants to kind of improve them. Maybe he views them as something that he, raw material that you can use to create his own sort of story. Uh, and Robert Rodriguez has kind of turned into the skid and, you know, he's made the machete films, which are essentially just him delving even further into his own nostalgia and being rewarded uh, with less results. And you can kind of see that dichotomy in the, the films themselves where Planet Terror is a pretty much a, a full-on delve into this kind of sleazy sci-fi nostalgia thing, whereas Death Proof kind of tips its head towards... Uh, like vanishing points in films like that, but it's more. It feels more like a Tarantino film that's he is he is making in a particular style, almost as a kind of a an exercise for himself. Hmm. Um, yeah, but it just doesn't work, does it? No, especially because uh, tonally those two films are wildly uh, at odds. Yeah, and yeah, there's so much in there's so much kind of cognitive dissonance in those films, in the sense that like there's uh you know they make it look like it's shot on old grainy film stock even though i'm pretty sure i know that tarantino shot his bit on film but rodriguez shot his on on digital and then they added effects to make it look like film and then had things like but it's set now and people have like mobile phones and stuff and then which they is the missing no real yeah yeah so tiresome yeah it kind of i was just kind of thinking that one of the things I really like in a lot of sketch comedy now is how well people kind of recreate the look of something for a comedic effect. Um, for example, I've been catching up on this current season of Inside Amy Schumer and there's an amazing sketch there which is um, in, in 
uh, inspired by Friday Night Lights, which is all essentially about uh, a high school football team, the prevalence of rape in high school and college football. Uh, and visually, it's an amazing recreation of that show. And it works because it's like three minutes and it has a serious point. Whereas I feel like kind of tedious and obsessive attempts to recreate the look of a very old style of filmmaking without any real comment to make about that style of filmmaking is why those films are kind of just kind of a, a tiring exercise. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah. Which brings us to a nice point to kind of uh, wrap things up. Um, because I don't want to think about uh, Planet Terror and Death Proof any longer than I have to. <laughs> uh, although weirdly, like even though I said that the t- you know the people who are going to watch that, um, you know, have no idea what Grindhouse is or you know have no actual connection to it. Um, but like most young people I've spoken to, young people, what do I fucking sound like? Um, younger people um, really love it. I didn't get it. It's kind of like a gap year. You know, it's mm. kind of you get to go and experience life somewhere else that's beyond your experience but not really kind of live in it just kind of view it and then you get to go home so you Mm -hmm. get the experience of thinking oh this is what cinema was like in the 70s but you don't have to like have a rat nibbling on your foot or whatever yeah 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 where do you go on your gap year to have a rat (laughs) nibbling on your foot um croydon yeah yeah it's uh it's bad bad times in croydon um okay cool anyway that was nostalgia um uh, one day people will remember this podcast fondly. Um, and, uh, yeah, I already get all nostalgia, but Yeah, I know. I remember when I used to be into nostalgia. That was a uh, Dimitri Martin joke I always liked. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, we'll be back next week with a Mad Men uh, roundup uh, once I watch uh, all the episodes uh, and, and, and kind of look forward to, to seeing where that goes. Uh, but until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.